Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey folks, this is Brad Listy, the host of the Other People Podcast, just reminding you that this program is offered freely. It's a free show Almost 700 episodes and counting all available to you for free. Your support makes a difference this holiday season. If you want to support the podcast, it would be most appreciated. You can do that at patreon.com slash other PPL pod. Patreon.com slash other PPL pod. You can even do an annual membership now. That's a new option. Patreon.com slash other PPL pod. All right. Thank you. Okay. Hey everybody, how you doing? Welcome to the Other People Pasta uh, Podcast. I almost said Other People Pasta. <laughs> That's where we are in 2020. I hope you're okay out there wherever you are. I'm in Los Angeles. And I have on the program today Alex Branson. He is the author of a novel called Water Wasted, available from Rare Bird Books. Water Wasted is the official December pick of the Nervous Breakdown Book Club. The Nervous Breakdown is my online culture magazine and literary community founded, I think, almost 15 years ago. It is now edited by Joseph Grantham, and it has its own monthly book club. For more on that, just go to thenervousbreakdown.com. A listener named Kathy writes, Dear Brad, I'm way overdue in showing my support for the podcast. I've been a fan for a long time. I remember discovering other people in 2011. I was a med student at the time. And I've returned to the podcast over and over again since then, especially during stressful or lonely parts of life. Despite having a weird fondness for the show, I imagine you don't have that many medical professionals listening in regularly. I did not try my hand at creative writing until recently. I don't expect it will go anywhere, but bits of wisdom and experience soaked in from the podcast have helped me keep at it for now, and at any rate, it's totally changed how I read books, which has been cool. Thanks for the show. Hope you can keep it up. Signed, Kathy. Well, thank you, Kathy. I love getting letters like this when I hear from listeners who work in fields that have uh, very little to do with writing, or at least the uh, creative writing. 
for a while, I was getting a lot of letters from like architects and visual artists. But I'm fascinated uh, to hear this. And I'm uh, really, uh, I'm happy to hear that you're writing. I, I don't think you should be so down on your prospects. Louis Ferdinand Celine was a physician. He was a great writer. He was also <laughs> he was also deeply troubled and a horrible anti-Semite in the early part of the 20th century. But nonetheless, there have been physicians who were also creative writers, assuming you're a physician. You know, you know what I mean. You can do both. Who else was there? There's, there have been other doctors who wrote fiction. Wasn't che- no Chekhov wasn't a doctor. I don't know. Anyway, Kathy, I appreciate it. Thank you for writing. Otherwise, I'm trying to think of if there's anything else that's been happening in my life. Does anybody else feel like you've just gotten into a rhythm and a routine during this pandemic and it has become so rote and deadening <laughs> that like your just entire life just feels like you're going through the motions. I don't know. I, you know, it's not that bleak. I'm a ritualistic person anyway. I like a routine, but I feel like during the pandemic, it's like steroidally constant. <laughs> My guest today is Alex Branson. His novel, Water Wasted, is out there now from Rare Bird Books. It is the official December pick of the Nervous Breakdown Book Club. It was a pleasure to meet Alex over the transom and to talk with him about his life and his writing. So here he is, folks. This is Alex Branson, and his book, One More Time, is called Water Wasted. I have a candle lit most evenings, I would say. I don't know how it, it, it's grown into it, but anybody that like tells I get a gift for Christmas, I'm just like, just give me some candles. Well, if they're expensive. Yeah, but that's why you wait till sales and stuff like that. Like I got a, I get alerted, or my my fiance gets the alert. But you know, we're both into it. Every time Bath and Body Works has a sale, you load up on like eighty dollars worth of candles that last you like four months. What is your brand? Do you have like a favorite scented candle brand? No, I have ones I don't trust, you know, like I don't ever go for the big bang buck ones, you know, target used to have the best, but there's not any target ones around. You could get a eucalyptus candle at target for about six fifty, and it'd be delightful. Eucalyptus and lavender. It can't have, cannot miss on either one of those scents, even if you get it from like Walmart or something. But, uh, yeah, like even like this candle normally is like a twenty dollar candle. It's ridiculous. Yeah, I don't understand. But, I don't understand. And then like you can get like I've been in candle shops where you can. I mean, you can spend a lot of money. I'm trying to think of a. Oh, people go nuts. No, I bought my wife like a two hundred dollar. I mean, this is a, a like a birthday gift, but it was like a, a big two hundred dollar diptyque candle. Oh man! And uh, I was just trying to, you know, I was like, "What do I do?" And uh, well, the, the the if you go hard into it, right, 
hard into uh, and you'll be like oh well woodwick is a better than getting any other kind and then you want the three wick it makes your house stink good but then you start going into some real money if you go that way yeah and i don't know if it's worth it i don't know if it like it doesn't last like the candle even if it's a three wick if it is either yeah it doesn't last long enough um but i relate to like wanting things to smell good i think that's a good way to be yeah it's it's especially like any type you have to podcast you're just sitting there alone right i I, we do all of our stuff remotely because you know he lives my the guy i do the podcast with lives in detroit so you're essentially sitting in a room talking to yourself and feeling a little insane about that so i like having a candle you set up a nice mood i i was a big three drinks guy for a minute i'm not drinking now but when i was drinking i would record you would have a glass of water a beer and a source of caffeine i was huge on that huge on having a candle like getting everything set so wait okay there's a lot to unpack here so yeah i know i'm sorry no it's okay first of all what is your podcast i do e1 podcast i've done been doing it for i think Three years now, two and a half, somewhere along those lines. At a certain point, you stop like paying attention, but uh, uh, it's like an improv comedy podcast. So you're just improving with a guy in Detroit. Yeah. What do you guys set? Like, how does that work? Do you you have like a some kind of framework, or do you literally just get on the line and just start riffing? Oh uh, no, we have some frame. Like we've done, we just did a whole script. We do a lot of scripted episodes lately. Like honestly, that's how it kind of started. I would we would write out like a page of random assorted ideas because like you want to have the freedom to riff, but you want to have some structure to go back to if the riff doesn't work. Right. Yeah. No. So, so that's like the whole the whole system for it. We did a we just did a a couple scripted episodes just because we I think we've gotten a little bored of like doing the same general premise because the whole idea of the podcast is that every episode of the podcast is the first episode of a different podcast and it's called E One. Yeah. Which is, I didn't even think about this when naming it, but it's insanely hard to Google it. Yeah, I think that's what I was trying to do. I was like, I was... it's insanely hard to Google it. I think like just E1 podcast as one word is what we've stuck to for everything. So it's even more confusing, right? Because we're on Spotify and stuff and all that. And like, in order to. We we also have done a lot of music parody stuff through my uh, our producer Charles, and uh, so that stuff is also on Spotify under E One Podcast. How do you how do you so have if, a, how do you have a producer? How do I I don't have a producer. I want a producer. <laughs> well, he's he's my buddy. I went to college with. I was living with him at the time, and he was a huge music nerd. Name's Charles Austin. He's been in a bunch of different bands and Solips and a couple other stuff in Chicago, but like. Um, so I was just like, you know, I'm going to do a podcast with, you know, with this guy I've never met who's my buddy from playing video games on the internet. <laughs> and uh, he was like, all right, I'll do it. What, are you, and then he uh, wait, are you, wait, a, wait, are you doing Twitch? Is that what you're doing with the video games? Uh, no, I don't really do Twitch. I play Dungeons and Dragons. I've done that on Twitch a few times, but never any video game stuff on Twitch. I'm not good at video games anymore. I'm too old. Yeah. And my buddy's just now getting there. I think he's like 29 now, but uh, it's it's too hard to do it. So whenever I would play video games, I would just bullshit the whole time because it's like I'm not going to win. Right. And everybody I play with is very competitive, and I'm not very competitive. Me neither. And I also yeah. – I don't – I am I stopped playing video games a long time ago, and I just – you know, I, I, I don't uh, wish to denigrate 
gamers or or video games they're 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 amazing these days like the games are so sophisticated but i just can't bring myself to engage because a it seems like too much like there's too much of a learning curve just, it is. just to learn how to play the game and then the kids are amazing if you play online the kids are amazing yeah and then the time investment required to actually get good like i don't have the time i don't even know yeah. you know i don't know how i would fit it in you from what i've noticed i have a lot of friends who are like big twitch guys i have a lot of guys who do twitch like full time that are and in order to get good at a video game first you got to pick one video game because you'll start playing like if you play a bunch of different video games you'll l- actively get worse at the one you're like trying to get good at so these guys will play constantly like it's exhausting frankly and then it'll just you know they'll switch you know oh i'm playing rainbow six siege now i can't play Fortnite. i can't do this and and, and i don't know how they do it i just like to get in the games that have a car and then i try to hit people with the car <laughs> which isn't good strategy apparently <laughs> So you also said, you know, when you were talking about podcasting that you used to have, what, a caffeinated beverage, some water, and a and a beer or something. Yeah. But then the, the beer's been cut out. You're no longer drinking? Yeah, because uh, I, I got crazy on that stuff because uh, uh, of COVID and whatnot. Probably the first three months I realized, like, wow, I'm drinking all of the time now for no reason. Because <laughs> I was on work from home because um, I, I, I worked for um, – the Children's Home Society in New Jersey, which was an adoption agency, and I was the uh, I was a, a what is called a Part B writer, meaning that you take a kid's medical history, you take their personal narrative, you take information about their parents and stuff like that, and you compile this enormously long document that the prospective adoptive parents get, and also the kid gets when he's eighteen, right? Anything that people might not want to tell them, basically, a lot of bad stuff. Uh, in an adoption narrative, but uh, it's like a biography. Yeah, and so you're 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 detailing anything, uh, especially like the medical stuff. You have to know if there's potentials of heart disease or schizophrenia. So it's a lot of information that you compact into as small of a document as you can. But the first uh, what I think I got sent home. They said no working in April and they didn't even have the stuff. Cause these are all secure documents. There's HIPAA, there's stuff like that. I had about two months where I was getting paid and I didn't do a drop of work. That's not bad. Yeah, it wasn't bad. Except the problem is, yeah, I have all this free time. Cause I went from like being a very busy person, right? Working full time, doing a podcast, writing a book, you know, to being a not very busy person. So I drank way too much for like two months straight. And I just got, got sick of it i didn't do anything too stupid but i just got sick of it and uh you know i was like this isn't gonna work i'm gaining a bunch of weight i'm ear <laughs> the mornings i'm grouchy every mo- it's just i don't know it's a miserable state of existence to find yourself in so i just cut that out and i haven't i haven't gone back to it since i was thinking of getting a bottle of champagne for new year's but now it's like the streak you know, I don't want to bl- break the streak. Yeah, I mean, have you? Did you ever have any like uh, issues with drinking prior to COVID? Oh yeah, I mean, I had a DUI when I was like 22. When I was in college, I was a pretty hard drinker. Yeah, me too. And then you know, I, I uh, yeah, I got the DUI. I didn't drink for a year, and then I drank for like three years. Started getting rough again. Then I st- like I've had a a period of just long term breaks with alcohol over the course of my life. Each time I come back to it, I get a little less uh, stupid, right, and a little bit more disciplined. But uh, right now, I'm off the wagon or on the wagon. 
Is the wagon good? The wagon's good. You're on the you're okay, on the wagon. I am on the wagon. Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond based on 3 decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns Depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. I feel like you have, it sounds to me like you have the ability to sort of pull yourself back. Um, you have like a self-preservation instinct, which not everybody has when it comes to substance. So that's good. Yeah. It's the, uh, it's the, I go and I call it like the ditch digger mentality. Like you just no feelings, no dramatic stuff about it. You're going to do this. You can figure it out when you're normal. So I just try to get back to normal as soon as possible. I was doing like the whole thing. I was, I started like showering at eight 30 every morning and getting dressed. Like I was going to work even though I was just sitting at my computer. Like I just faked it. But sometimes and it works. Yeah, I was going to say sometimes faking it is exactly like fake it to make it or whatever the phrase is. Yeah. And I, you know, I've been having this conversation lately with myself and with others about COVID, you know, as we get closer to, you know, one year of pandemic life, trying to get a feel for what this is doing to us. And then I think you couple that with all of the, uh, the chaos politically in the United States and, like it's just yeah. it's been a very intense period of time and i don't think any of us have a full sense of what the impacts are i think there's going to be i i think there's going to be some really bad media to come out of this i think there's going to be like people trying to explore like what happened then and nobody's going to get it right i think there's going to i think i think like first of all the second this is over we're all going to forget that this happened. I truly believe that in my heart. <laughs> Everybody's a meat. It'll take one brunch where you don't like feel guilty about it or you don't like have to worry about, you know, not even your place as an individual getting sick, but your macro influence of now you are part of the problem. And what the second anyone can have like a guilt free get too drunk at dinner and come home. I think it's over. Nobody's going to be thinking about this. Why would they want to? Yeah, it is amazing. Like in terms of, I guess it's a form of resilience, you know, or, or, or some kind of like uh, persistent ignorance in human beings where like even things this big and this catastrophic and this traumatic, you know, with the passage of time, uh, as things maybe normalize a little bit, we forget like, a, or a lot of us will forget whatever lessons we were supposed to have learned. Yeah. It's going to be right out the window <laughs> and then people are going to try to explore it 
And I think this is also an experience that, okay, what we're all going through might be universal in some way. But I, I honestly think everyone reacts to solitude a little differently. So I think you're even going to be these like, I don't know. Do you remember when like in the first four months when people were talking like we're going to do like a uh, like a love in the time of quarantine style TV show? We're going to do like nobody wants to see it. That's why they stopped making them. Nobody cares. Nobody wants to see like a sitcom based in quarantine. Right. I, I really think that like. Everyone's just going to get past this the second they're able to. And whatever long-term mental health effects there are from it, I think I think people trying to explore like what those will be will just get it dramatically wrong. It's like when Trump became president and everyone said like, "Oh, comedy's going to be so great." There is a, there it has not been. Trump-based comedy is awful and corny and lazy and like I think we're going to see the same thing on the dramatic side of it. I've I've seen a lot of people online professing dread like preemptive dread over the inevitable wave of pandemic novels oh yeah and movies i mean it's going to be addressed like you're saying and yeah i think people maybe because we're in the middle of it still it's hard to imagine reading about it in some kind of fiction or watching it on the screen or whatever but it's got to happen and yeah um you know, I don't know how to get it right. Like I think about my own particular experience of it and certainly parts of it have been sad and hard, but the truth is that I'm uniquely well-suited to isolation. <laughs> oh yeah. Everybody in media kind of is, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I think... The journalists, it's really seamless for them. Anytime there's like a report on what's going on at no, anybody reporting it that has the privilege to be able to report it, I don't think understands like the magnitude of it like i started seeing it when i was working for the adoption agency because these parents would check they got nothing you know and their experience is going to be a million times different than somebody working for the new york times saying um you have to do you know it's been like this 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 and this i i don't think we're gonna really understand like through the media what this was about yeah yeah no i agree i think people on the front lines and people in underprivileged situations are definitely bearing the brunt of it in ways that um you know, others of us are not though. I will say living in Los Angeles, you know, like everybody I know pretty much works in media one way or another. Yeah. Uh, and there are people who temperamentally are not suited to quarantine in the way that I and some other of my friends are like some people are, yeah. are super extroverted and I've just noticed what I've noticed is that there was a, at first a lot of like struggle and sort of like vocal resistance to what was happening. And then I think there was maybe some surrender and some sort of like biding time. And then at some point, many months ago, they basically just broke with it and just started tailoring their experience to suit themselves. You know, like I think people have different levels of tolerance for what is being asked of us. And I, I just call it breaking. A lot of people just break. They just decide yeah. that the you know the rules don't apply. They're going to socialize in their way, and they're going to sort of make their own rules. Yeah, that's the uh, that's the like uh, um, 
well, I'm going to have a mental breakdown, so I'm going to do it anyway, and you can't make me feel bad about it because I'm having a mental break. It's 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 layer. This I've, every time I've seen anyone break, there are layers of justification that just come with it to the point that I'm too tired to even say, yeah, you know, you're right. I just agree with everybody. Yeah, and I think too, it's hard to even keep track of what the rules are. Like we just went into yeah. lockdown here in California. And it's like, you know, you can't, there's no dining outside, but you can pick up food and you can like, I think you yeah. can walk your dog, you can go to the park, you can go to the beach, but you have to wear a mask. And it's just like, it gets to be, it's like, where, where are these listed? I feel like some of it's exhausting just trying to keep track of it all. My little brother's like a line cook in Missouri and he's been, it's just been business as usual for him since like April. Like he quit the job like a couple months ago, but like there was just so much time where he's just like, no, but everything was open. Everything was functioning normally. I went and visited my parents early in the pandemic because my mom had a health scare. And I was just amazed that like central Missouri, I didn't see a single mask. It's the, the experience is so different for everybody. I feel like that, like anyone trying to make a unifying theory or or capture what it was like is going to inevitably fail. Well, I, but I think that's the heart of why the United States has been so uniquely and dramatically fucked by COVID is because we had no real leadership, um, which is what I exactly what I think you would need. You need like a strong, um, you know, policy and communication happening from on high and coordinating state governors and everything. And it just didn't happen. So everybody just sort of did it their own way and politicized it. And now we have almost 300,000 people dead. It's so fucked up. I think it's also has to do like not even as much about Trump, but as like the, the, the American idea of freedom is very much like, fuck you. I'm going to do what I want. And I have the right to do what I want because of this document. And I'm just going to do it. And you're going to have to deal with it. I think there is like, it's um I don't remember if it's forward the foundation I think it's in the foundation series of the Isaac Asimov thing where he's just talking about people don't go backwards you know they find this neutron pump that's breaking the laws of gravity and it will kill destroy the whole planet in 300 years and you're getting so much free energy that things become cheap people don't go backwards from that you know people will absolutely sabotage their own lives and the lives of others because they do not want to take what they perceive to be a step backwards in their own lives. And I think that's a very American thing. Yeah, I find it so depressing. Uh, I find this American impulse, uh, this kind of like individual liberty on steroids impulse to be depressing. It's like we lack the ability to look out for one another or to, or to operate with any sense of collective responsibility to one another, even in like a dire health crisis. Like what is wrong with us? Yeah. Well, there's also like the dick measuring part of it where everybody is like, I care about it more than you do. So here's my level of freedom. Here's my document that says I could, you know, the Bill of Rights. Well, and immediately just flexing their dick to say, like, <laughs> I care about freedom more than other people <laughs> or or I care about other people more than other people. It's like the, vir- yeah. the virtue of it all, you know, which I don't know. Like, I just think that, like, if we just would have had some communication I don't know. It, it's so it's so hard to look back in the rearview mirror and, and figure out exactly what would have made it better. But it is alarming to me that our national character is what it is. Let's put it that way. Yeah. It's cool to live in a dying empire. <laughs> right? 
I mean, it's something. I'll tell you, we are living through some history that feels unique. Yeah. Do you agree? Yeah, I haven't, Do you agree? I haven't, I haven't, yeah, I haven't seen anything quite to this extent. Like, what do you compare it to? You know, Black Plague, where they locked up ports and they said no one can leave, you know, and twerping. And even then, like, not quite the same of we, we get to this level in our technology where our houses are little pleasure factories, right? We got all the media we want. You know, you can buy weed through the mail, you can get beer delivered, and uh, you can sit at your computer just blank-eyed with everything that you ever want to relax. And the second you are told that that's that, you want to go – I want – you know, during COVID, I've wanted to go to a club. I haven't gone to a club in 10 years. I thought, oh, it would be nice to go to a club. It's just it's just our – we want shit that's not in front of us. Right. And we don't want to be told that we can't have it. Yeah. So I want to like you, you know you got a lot of different things happening in your life. You're podcasting. You're into comedy. Do you ever do stand up? Do you ever like perform live? Nah, I I I remember trying it when I was like 22. I did it for a couple months, but uh, then you know that was in Columbia, Missouri, where I went to college at the University of Missouri, and I think I got over that pretty quick. I, it, it's always been a fun thing. It's always been interesting to me, but I've I've never wanted to like that's something that if you're gonna go into it you go into it like that's your life and i always wanted to be a writer more than i wanted to be a uh a stand-up comic you know okay okay so yeah because i wanted to ask where does the writing like the writing the novel fit in the novel has some funny aspects i mean it's not it's not like a, a totally dramatic work but it's definitely um you know it definitely plays in some dramatic keys and has some real pathos in it so uh, you know i guess that that's just you working some different muscles i think it's just how i talk because i don't like i don't i don't ever aim to be funny i did a uh, the book i did before this which i like self-published was called into the hills right and that one i kind of set out to be funny you know this one i didn't set out to be funny but the first things you kind of always here like the reflexive stuff this made me sad this made me laugh blah, blah blah so the first things i heard was it was funny and i was trying to think like what i don't remember really trying to be that funny when i was writing it the thing is that i i think i just have like a unique cadence and kind of way of talking and um i think it's also just it's a really low bar to be funny in a novel because so many books are just so unfunny when they try to be I think like the peak of like literary fiction humor is like the mirthy chuckle. Like, <laughs> <laughs> like there really aren't a lot of like knee slappers in any type of, uh, you know, what people consider like high end fiction. So, yeah, I think one of the rare, I, I often say like one of the rarest experiences for me as a reader is when I laugh out loud. If I laugh out loud while I'm reading a book, then the writer has really achieved something. Usually it's like, yeah. it's like an internal laugh and even that's good. I mean, I, I I'll take an internal laugh, but if I actually make a noise while I'm reading, then something has happened. I think like when you, when you write something that's funny, it's almost coincidentally funny. It's the circumstances that have led up to this 
are inherently humorous or this person's mindset is inherently humorous or something like that. Whereas when you're doing something that's strictly comedic, a joke has way more structure. It has way more timing inclined to it. Like I writing is a hundred percent like, you know, who said it? You can't have two mistresses. My mistress is, is like writing, but I have so much respect for comedy and like comedy writing. Cause it's, it's, Bad comedy is the worst thing in the world. It makes everyone in the room feel bad. Bad drama, you can just gloss right over. You know? There's higher stakes in comedy almost than there is in, like, drama. Yeah, I agree. I think, I think you know, that you can't fake it. You either get the laugh or you don't when it comes to yeah. comedy. It either The joke either works or it doesn't, and you know it especially if you're in a room trying to make people laugh. Uh, but I'm right there with you. Like I hold uh, like really great comedians and really great uh, comic writers in super high regard. Like to me, they're kind of magicians. Yeah. So well, it sounds like you're from uh, Missouri, like born and raised. Is that correct? Yeah. And that's the setting of the book? Um, yeah, it's kind of the setting of it is it kind of tailors between because I, I, I grew up I moved to St. Louis, like South St. Louis when I was very young, uh, like South County. And um, I'd say I was around eight. But all my parents' family, my dad, you know, my dad's one of like nine. My mom's one of like five. And they all lived and they had their own families in like a 10-mile radius, you know, around Antonia, Missouri, Hillsboro, Missouri, probably like 40 minutes South St. Louis. So every single time we piled up in the car, which was every weekend – we'd go down to Hillsborough, right? And that kind of gave me the basis of like a lot of the characters, a lot of uncles and aunts and stuff like that. And the actual kind of setting of the book is based off of my first job out of college where I went to an area that was a lot more rural, Herman, Missouri, um, where I was working as a youth counselor in like a juvenile detention facility. How did you wind so, how did you wind up with that? What was your did you study to do this in college? Absolutely not. My minor was sociology and that got me a state job and this was like when I graduated, I graduated with an English degree and then, you know, the well had dried up. So, I was working overnight at hotels for about a year. And then I was getting my legal problems from the DUI solved for about a year. And then once those cleared up, they cleared. I don't know why they did it, but they let me work with kids. <laughs> uh, it's nothing better than state bureaucracy. We can we can yeah. we can scrub that out. I mean, what did you get? Yeah. Did you get like the DUI expunged from your record through probation? I I think I got like four months left on it. Then I got to get a lawyer to it lasts on my record for like ten years. Damn. Yeah, that's a pain. Yeah. It's a pain I in the ass. I can't go to Canada. If I go to Canada, they're gonna say get out of here. You know, because of the DUI. Because we actually did like a bunch of E1 live shows for the podcast, and we were going to do a Toronto show. We had to, we had to like bail out on setting it up because they weren't sure if they'd let me in the country. For real? Yeah. They, like, it's weird. Canada has like a what? A rule that if you've got a DUI, you're not allowed in? It's on the discretion of the border agent. He can just, it, depending on how he feels, he can let me in or not. Which, you know, scheduling a show would be a little rough if there's a chance I just might not show up. 
Right. I didn't realize that. Yeah, it's a pain in the ass to get a DUI. It's better to not get one. Yeah, that's an understatement. So you're counseling kids. That's got to be a tough job, but it's also probably like a fulfilling job on some level and an interesting job like from a writerly perspective. Yeah, it's it's a very stressful job because I was working with um, – so it was this facility in central Missouri. And um, essentially it was a mixture of local kids from basically white kids that were almost all – for some meth related grievance, you know, possession or distribution or making it or get overdosing or something like that. And then getting sent here mixed with kids that were in what was called the dual jurisdiction program, meaning they were charged in court as adults and released back to youth services. So these were kids that were going to be held in juvenile until they were 22 21 or 22, I can't remember exactly what it was. So we had one program that was like, you know, dealing with kids that were, you know, they would come in sweating off of meth and then just trying to build them back up so where they wouldn't relapse the second they got out. Mixed with these kids that were going to be there for four years and were taking like online college classes and, you know, trying to figure out where they're going to stay after they get out of it. So it was, uh, it was, it was a, a lot to process initially, especially since I was only like 23, 24 at the time. Damn. Yeah. And meth is, uh, like in the realm of substance abuse, it is, I think a particular horror. I mean, it's, it's a nightmare. Yeah. Yeah. It's a night kid, kid, like legitimately come like gaunt face children, like, and you would see they'd be there for a month before, like, really their features, like, filled out again. Like, it was – it is just corrosive. Did you have any experience – I know, I mean, meth is, a, is and has been a huge problem in this country for a long time. And I think especially in rural America, there's been a lot uh, written about, you know, the impacts that it's had. Did you – see this in your college days? Did you have an inkling of it in South St. Louis or visiting family in smaller town, Missouri? Do you know what I'm saying? Or was this, was this the eye opener, this, this job out of college? I would say the job was, cause even in, um, you know, Columbia, right. It's a college town. It's a little blue pocket in the middle of Missouri. You know, you don't see a lot of rough stuff and meth in itself is not a street drug right you can see in areas that are affected by you know heroin or something like it's you can see the evidence meth no matter how bad you get like you might see a guy that passes you in walmart and you're like that guy is like sweating bullets right now and you would be able to know but it's not like you see meth ever um unless you're like within like the, the, the type of circles it operates in. Cause even with meth, most of the time we would get kids, you would get two, three brothers from the same family. And you knew that family was acting as like the, the dealers for the area, right? It would be people's uncle would hook somebody up with this. And then they would talk to the, and you would get like collectives that would be based around, you know, one to two to three families. Like, it's not a street thing. So you really don't – that was my first time ever being exposed to it because just walking around even to Hillsborough and Columbia, you don't you don't see it. It's not apparent. Do when people tweak, they mostly just tweak at home, right? Like, take apart their, yeah. they take apart their television and <laughs> whatever they do. They clean their house. I'll tell you what. We had clean-up days on Sundays. 
and the kid this is yeah this is going to be taking it a little bit lightly but it was always very funny to me and the kids found it very funny too so i'll say it. the the meth kids the kids that were addicted to meth were the best cleaners i've ever seen in my life <laughs> and they would be i would be like no it's done it looks good to me and they would just still keep clean for it was just like the ritual of it something to keep like their hands busy and their mind occupied it would be like a singular focus yeah, it's funny that you say that. Like the only experience that I have being around people on meth, uh, like this was years ago. I was just out of college and I was watching the Super Bowl. I was living with my parents, but I had a friend who lived in, you know, in Southern California who I hadn't really known that well in college, but we went to the same school and sort of traveled in the same circles. And uh, we both were Packers fans. And so we, I was like, the Packers went to the Super Bowl, uh, and I, we, we decided to watch the game together. And it was this guy and his girlfriend in this apartment. And I brought over a bottle, I think, of Jack Daniels. And I just had some drinks and watched the game, and the Packers lost, and it sucked. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, but I didn't realize it. They never offered me any, but they were both on meth. Yeah, and they'll just run. It lasts a long time. Well, that's what I was going to say is that they. I, I did notice that like during the game, I'm sitting there watching the game like a normal human being, like cheering and you know, uh, trying to follow what's happening. And they were like playing cards on the floor very intensely. <laughs> and then I remember I was going to drive home, but then I, you know, I was like, you know what, I'm too fucked up. So I, I was like, I'm going to crash on your couch and just drive home in the morning. And I distinctly remember because the next morning was Monday. They had to go to work. And I remember at like five in the morning, I hear a vacuum and I look up and my buddy's girlfriend is just like manically vacuuming the living room. I I think like the post-college hangouts where you're desperately like trying to recapture that feeling, (laughs) that's where you end up hanging out with people that you just shouldn't. Uh, A a lot of times you'll just see, I I remember like hanging out with my buddy after I graduated and and, like I had stopped drinking for a while and whatever. And I was like, I'm going to start hanging out with people. I'm lonely. And then just, you know, next thing you know, oh, you're at some guy's house who he barely knows. And then everybody's passing around like a toilet paper rolled blunt. (laughs) And you're like, what am I doing, man? Yeah. This isn't the same. And yeah. and I think too, like, you know, there's something that, like fundamentally depressing about meth to me, but there's also something fundamentally depressing about trying to recapture that feeling in a context that is also like quasi adult and professional, you know, like, yeah. like watching my friend, my friend's girlfriend, like she was dressed in like business attire, you know, she had like on her little office, like outfit but she was vacuuming and she was high it was so weird yeah no it's that's a also misconception about meth like there's so many people that just like if you look at it through media there's nobody that just does a little bit of meth for a long time and those people exist and are the most confusing ones to me because they won't look sick they won't like they've like figured out how to like not reliably but like better than most people like handle their meth which is an insane concept to me, they're, but they're out there. There's guys that work the whole week and you would never know. And they're what? They're microdosing? I don't know what they're doing. They don't share their secrets. Yeah. People are very secretive about like meth. It's like the opposite of like people that like get high a lot on like that smoke weed or whatever who tell everybody all the time. 
meth people they won't let you know you gotta like do some digging around yeah i mean it makes you paranoid you're like i don't want anybody to know my secrets yeah and part of the you know i think i mentioned it briefly in the book but i remember like actively making a decision that like well all rural media is portrayed as you either have the drug ones or you have the ones where like some guy just comes in and lies about his whole life like a hillbilly elegy and i don't that's the only like representation of like rural culture like midwestern rural culture there is you have to choose between that you are either you know the schlubs or the drug they don't they rarely get portrayed as just humans and that's why i tried to avoid a lot of that's why i don't talk about like politics or trump or anything in the book either because i just want to have like a life story that is not like surrounded by context that damns them you know yeah no i hear that and i think um you know i grew up in indiana so i sort of relate you know the uh i grew up in wisconsin too but i mean same sort of milieu and you know it's complicated and even so like even even as somebody who grew up there and now lives i guess in a on a coastal state i can sometimes gloss over or find myself simplifying things in ways that i probably shouldn't yeah, it becomes easier when you have like 10 uncles who you know are decent people who are saying stupid shit. And you know that if you didn't know them, you'd be like, this just is a fucking waste of, of a person, you know? Yeah, I, I totally relate. I have so many, uh, my parents are from the South. And so I have so many extended family members who I don't share much in common with, uh, I guess, culturally or politically. And yet, I, I've known them my whole life. I know they're good, decent folks at heart. And, you know, it's trying to reconcile it all and make sense of it. That is uh, an increasingly difficult project, you know, I think on the political side for me, like trying to figure out how people can be on board with things that I think are fundamentally crazy. And yet, in a way, I'm glad to have these relationships because it forces me to check myself a little bit and to try yeah. to try to like operate in the gray area as opposed in like this more black and white style of thinking. I, because I think like the worst thing you can do and, and in a way, if you're trying to like humanize the rural, the isolating, how isolating the rural experience is, the worst thing you can do is like start off any type of media by like forgiving the characters for their like up and saying, Oh, well they're like this because of this, this, the you're immediately like portraying them as someone who needs to be forgived. Someone who's like has to be explained. And I think that's like a re that, I don't know. That was part of the reason why I wanted to, to do the book, how I did it is just to present people and not forgive them, not condemn them, not use them as a vessel for a larger political or statement and just have them be as they are. Do you feel like, because I mean, you lived, when you were working this uh, this counselor job out of school, you were living in rural America, right? I mean, what would... Yeah. So do you feel like, a, I mean, it sounds like you feel like a sense of... Um, 
camaraderie, not camaraderie, or I guess like uh, identity, you know, as somebody f- yeah. from that part of the of the country and a sense of wanting to defend it? Like, do you have a chip on your shoulder about it? Not really, because what's the point of having like a chip? I, I, I think politically, I definitely have a huge chip on my shoulder um, with people like attacking rural areas or attacking um i'm a socialist like i'm left as hell through and through but i i I don't like when people say things like oh you know like missouri's always going to go trump or oh this area is going trump it's just like they're try to find one democratic office that's not in St. Louis, Columbia, Kansas City, Joplin, or, or Cape Girardeau. Like, there's not like this. These people have been abandoned politically, completely abandoned. My 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 uncle grew up in Iron County. Iron County's mentioned in the book. Iron County used to be a blue stronghold. Why unions? Right. The second Clinton came in and started pushing everything right, the unions became weaker. I mean, you built. I don't know. It, it you cannot condemn country people for being conservative when that's the only people talking to them, and everyone acts like it's this giant waste of time. I think it was Obama who decided to take, uh, or not Obama. It was the leadership under Obama who was the head of the party at that time. With Tom Perez or uh... Perez? It was Perez. Yeah, I think it was Perez. But we started taking a lot of the money that would go to these regional offices and started you know, doing what every politician does now where they say this election is going to be decided in Sarasota, Florida, you know, and now, you know, you've lost a whole group of people to just the only people talking to them is Facebook. Right. Well, yeah, no, it's like, it's pretty crazy. Like not to spend too much time on politics because I think we've all had enough at this point, but you know, it is sort of inverted right now where you have the Republican party has become the party of the working class, which doesn't make any sense because on a policy level, they're not doing anything for the people they purport to represent. But then you have the Democrats who have traditionally been the party of unions and the working class, not doing a good enough job of speaking to those people and defending their interests. It's just, you have a a democratic analyst who goes, I wonder why these people from Hillsborough, Missouri did not enjoy Lena Dunham doing a Hillary Clinton rap. I wonder why they don't like that. (laughs) So weird of them not to like that. So when it comes to your book, uh, was the book and the ambition to write, I mean, I guess the the early job as a juvenile counselor factored into Water Wasted, but um, you had another book that came out, you said, before that. So, you, you know, you were nursing the ambition from right out of college to, to write fiction. Well, you know, like, I think especially in college, right? Writing is like an identity almost, you know, you say you want to be a writer and it's like a thing. It's like something you implant on yourself. And sooner or later, you actually have to write something or you have to give that up. It's like a challenge to your personality, you know. So I remember thinking like, well, I got to fucking I got to start writing. I got to like put up or shut up because I don't think like I think a lot of people approach writing a book like it's this sacred undertaking. Like I am working, I am walking amongst the halls of Faulkner and Toni Morrison and I got to do all this. And it's really kind of easy to write a book. Like it's hard to write a good book, but if you just force yourself 
to actually sit down and write a book, it's not incredibly difficult. You know, we're not working in those sacred halls. We're just people writing our experiences, you know? So I think it became easier for me once I kind of like adopted that personality out of college and just forced myself to do it. Because you really never know if it's going to be good or not until you do it. You can work on your craft, you can write, you can practice, you can edit and all that, but you really never know unless you just fart it out. And then share it with people and let them tell you what you did. Yeah. Well, and I think too, I'm curious, like when you were in college, did you tell people close to you that you were going to be a writer? No, but you know, like, you know how when you're an alcoholic and you're like, oh, look at these great alcoholic writers, you you just have a kind of a shitty idea of what the world's about. Okay. Like that's that's kind of how I, I – I didn't go around saying I was a writer, but like in my head, you know, everything I was doing was material you were getting. It was probably really annoying, but everything you're doing is like gathering experiences. And so like, you know, when you fuck up and you wake up on a park bench, you're less likely to like hate yourself for it. And you're like, oh, look at me on Burroughs. Like, <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, right. Yeah. It's a great defense Saying that you're a writer is a great defense mechanism for being a shitty person a lot of the time. Right. You're just like, listen, this is research. I'm doing experiential research. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, I think I think a couple of things. First of all, I was, I was asking if you told people because I, I think sometimes you can enforce accountability upon yourself more easily if you've put yourself on the hook with people close to you. Oh, yeah. Um, but I think you can also do it just simply by, you know, really making a – a point internally that you're going to try to be a writer and, and eventually, like you said, you've got to sit down and do the work. Otherwise you just feel like a fool. Yeah. Um, but I think I also want to talk a little bit more about, uh, like seeking out experience. And did you, you know, I think, uh, the kind of emotional intensity that you went through in this job as a counselor and in the job that you were just working at this adoption agency in New Jersey, do you go into work pursuits looking for that kind of emotional intensity with an eye on writing or is it just something that's kind of happened as a result of your, you know, education and uh, professional history? I think the education professional history, I'm not looking, I don't like writing. Like I don't want to write the kids stories when they tell me them, you know, I don't want to like, it feels like, cheap and betraying i think when i started it i was just looking for a job you know my dad was on my ass i'm 23 i'm like graduated i can't like he wants me out of the house like like it was a, a, a survival when i first started into it but you know i've worked jobs outside of it where you work for some company or some retail store you know at a hotel and it, it just you f i feel better it's completely selfish orientation, but I feel better about myself if my job is a nonprofit, you know, or a government agency or something where I'm like getting paid shit. And I, you know, it's a good feeling to come home and not hate yourself. <laughs> and I think when I was working like overnight at a hotel, you would come home and you'd be like, I'm fucking miserable, you know? Right. And there is like, it's a stressful job, like working when I, when I worked at Montgomery city, right. That was the name of the youth center that I, that I was working at there. Um, I would get off work at 1230, right. I was living in an area that had a, you know, 
population if you count in the surrounding miles of about like 2,000 people. There wasn't a Walmart, you know, there wasn't much to like do. And so I had also moved away from all my friends. I was living in an apartment by myself. I'd get off work and I wouldn't get home till one o'clock, you know. So I would get, you know, go to the McDonald's fast food drive through and get two McDoubles, two McChickens and a 12 pack of beer from the gas station. You know, that was my life for like six months until like I actively like tried to break that. How was you? How were you? I mean, you must have been putting on the lbs if that was your ritual <laughs> i was still pretty young okay yeah and 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 you know uh it wasn't it wasn't going as crazy as that because usually that would be my only big meal for the day 12 beers <laughs> i wouldn't drink all 12 oh, okay <laughs> you know, i'm not drinking all 12 maybe on the weekends right. not every night and then how did you wind up in new jersey uh my fiance lives here Oh, okay. And so, so I had moved to Chicago. I was living in Chicago for a while. I was working for Heartland Alliance, who do a lot of uh, nonprofit work out there with children. And so I was working there. Um, and uh, you know, she flown in. I met her, visited a bunch, and then I, uh, I was making enough money off the podcast that I could quit my job. So I was like, well, well, let's. Let's see what's out here. And that's when I got the adoption agency job out here, moved out here. And, uh, yeah, living just outside of Atlantic City, which is very weird. Yeah. But in Atlantic City, especially now, I think, uh, in this, like, this economy, like, it's got to have taken a big hit, right? Oh, yeah. Especially with the casino workers. They were getting, um, you know, there's been a lot of protests and stuff here um, because like the casino workers all lost their health insurance after like four months of the pandemic stuff going on, you know, and that was supporting the whole economy. They've opened up in like limited numbers, but I don't know if anybody, how many people are going to visit the casinos or whatnot. It's been, uh, it's been rough. Yeah. you got to be a diehard gambler to want to be in an Atlantic city casino. Really got to. Yeah. See, Atlantic City casinos, you don't think you see a lot of diehard gamblers. You see a lot of bachelorette parties and just men determined to make the worst decisions of their lives. <laughs> it's so gross, man. I think of, yeah. I think back, I, you know, I've said this before, but I, I used to think Vegas was so cool when I was in college. I went through like this window where we all thought it was the, the most fun place to go because you could sort of yeah. do whatever you wanted. And now you have to basically drag me there. Uh, I have no desire. Zero. Yeah. I I never went to the, the casino. Or I went to the casino, like, yeah, obviously it's right here. So I went there, like, the first couple months I was here. But after that, it's just like, you got to feel like I got to come home and just wash yourself hard. <laughs> and what about, uh, like, amid all of this, you're doing the podcast, you're working day jobs that are, you know, demanding, uh, working with kids and defending the interests of uh, underprivileged kids and everything. Um, and then you're trying to write a novel in the midst of it all. Like, do you have a system? Like, are you just writing in pockets of time whenever you can find them? Or are you somebody who's like super disciplined? I'm not, I'm pretty disciplined. I don't think I'm like the, you know, Stephen King, 2000 words a day discipline, but I, I, I always get upset when I talk to people who write, who just say that they write when they feel it. 
Because I'm like, if you look over your whole, if you're writing a book, right, and you write some stuff when it really feels on and you're feeling it, and some stuff of when you've kind of forced yourself, you're not emotionally there. If you go back and reread it, you cannot tell which one's better than the other, in my opinion. So if you just make yourself do it, you get into a rhythm, you know, light a candle, I feel like you can hammer it out. And and I think I think people do better if they treat it a little bit like it is work, you know? Yeah, that's that Midwestern sensibility coming through right there. You just gotta It's the the ditch digger mentality. You gotta just you gotta do it. I agree. I think too, like you, like I've caught myself in the past like being too precious about circumstances or I don't know. Sometimes you just gotta you make the time. If it's an hour a day, you just sit there and you do the work and that's that. And I agree with you completely. Some of the best writing I've ever done has been on days when I didn't feel like I really had it, whatever it is, yeah. you know, so you can surprise yourself. Yeah. You know, cause honestly, a lot of it is just translating just shitty feelings in your subconscious. And I don't, if you're in a good mood, it's almost <laughs> antithetical to just tap into that. I remember, oh, so like when I was writing this, right, I, I was, I had written this book for like seven years, right? Um, I started it and gave up on it and then I picked it back up and I was starting to finish it when I first moved here and I could tell my fiance, like if I, if I had like hammered out four hours of book, she knew, you know, while she was at work or whatever. And I would just be like quiet and like depressed and like, I don't know, but it, 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 it's hard to like put it down but like you have to like force yourself to go through that a little bit even if it sucks even if it's detrimental to your life a little bit in order to get it done yeah i know i completely agree especially if you're working on stuff that's close to the bone um or just stuff that's i guess personally upsetting to you somehow um it's not always pleasant but you know n like like you were saying earlier neither is work and sometimes you just gotta, yeah. you gotta go through it. Um, and hopefully there's some reward in it. Like if not for you, then, then for the reader. And if you're sitting in front of a computer writing stuff, it's always going to be better than the best day at the worst job you've ever had. Right. Yeah. I mean, that's another thing that's so easy to lose sight of is like what an unbelievable privilege it is to even have the ability to sit around writing whatever the hell you want. I feel so guilty about it sometimes. Yeah. Like I got laid off, so I'm not working right now. Right. The, the, they, they shut down everything cause of, uh, uh, COVID and whatnot, probably like three months ago. And, and, you know, I've just been floating along on like the podcast and writing stuff like that. And, uh, it's weird because I've kind of prided myself a lot on like, you know, being busy and working and still writing. And now it's just like, I got all this time. I legitimately like feel guilty. Like I wish there was like a bunch of brush outside. I could just go clear, you know, it's hard to like figure out where your mind is when you don't have that like, kind of constant stimulation from work. Do you feel like you, do you feel like you're more productive as a creative person when you are busier? Probably not. I would say not. Cause like I can still, push it out it's just the whole feeling of everything has changed you know you 
you you start looking at the creative stuff as work rather than something you choose to be doing because now that is your livelihood. And when that mentality kind of switches, I I would say that the joy of creation isn't there as much. You know, especially I I think it's 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 more so with like a lot of the comedy stuff cuz you I would think of like some funny bit while I was working. And then I'd think about it for three hours. Then I would get home and like, before I could even talk to my fiance, I'd fart it out on the computer real quick. So I wouldn't forget it, you know, and then go hang out and then come back when I get some time to like revisit, like just some stupid goofy idea. And there's legitimate joy in that feeling that when you're dedicated to doing that all day is not there, you know? I wouldn't say joy pride would be the word maybe. I think I think if you're doing it and you're thinking about how to turn, you know, make a buck with it, uh, you know, and that's your primary source of income, it does change the dynamic a little bit. I find that there's something like there's something kind of nice about feeling like there's a a private aspect almost to the writing work. Like this is something I'm doing in secret (laughs) and I can sometimes even trick myself where I'm like, okay, I'm going to write this and put it out there into the world, but like, just forget about it. It almost feels like I didn't do it. Like you ever have that sense about your book? Like where you're like, is that me? Did I even do that? It feels like it's, I don't remember anything for, I'll be, I don't remember much from the book. People will like, people have been like DMing me and saying that they, cause it just came out. So they're just like, I just read it. I love it, And I have no idea what they're talking about. Some of the times, <laughs> like I, I, it, it is also a weird assumption on other people's parts to assume that the, the writer has his book memorized. Yeah. That's so, that's very true. I don't remember a lot. Uh, I don't remember a lot. I've like, even with the, like the podcast, how many episodes have you done? Almost 700. Yeah. We, I've done, we've done like two fifty. And I don't remember anything ever, like what happened. Like it's just in and out at a certain point. Yeah. But I remember the very first ones, you know, like the first five, I remember crystal clear. Yeah, I, I'll have situations where like, uh, you know, somebody will mention a writer and I will mistakenly think that I've talked to them <laughs> or or vice versa. There'll be somebody who's like done my show and I have I'll be like, oh, yeah, I did talk to that person and I'll have no recollection at all of, of you know, yeah. doing it. But, you know, 700, you do enough of them, it's going to happen. Uh, oh, yeah. Uh, do you come from a creative family? Like, are you somebody who has like a writerly or academic parent or something that gave you kind of a foundation or are you the oddball in your family or? I think I'm I'm the kind of oddball in the extended family. Everybody, we had a very, very tight, like my dad's very close with like his eight brothers and sisters. And, uh, you know, I I don't think any of them have done really much you know, creative. Um, there wasn't like a, you know, I have a, I have a cousin who, you know, moved out to San Francisco doing theater and stuff like that. And, and, but he was, you know, we, it was never a thing that was discussed. Mostly what was discussed with the family was just like jokes. It was a very big competitive joke family. Well, that's good. Yeah. My dad works for Washington. Well, I don't know if my dad wants me to say where he works. My dad works in uh, 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 he works for a, a, a he works for a university as a tech guy. My dad was one of those early, uh, you know, back when um, there wasn't like a computer 
degree for anything. They just hired all business majors. He was one of those first guys in through that. Um, my mom honestly works with like a lot of nonprofit social work stuff. Um, so me and her have that in common, but I didn't, uh, I didn't inherit, uh, any of that. I think most of my family has not been the type to explore different mediums or media or anything like that. Do you have any siblings? Yeah, I got two brothers. And my brother was do- my older brother was doing stand up for a while. I think he quit. He he's uh he starts about a, a different podcast every couple months. He's he he's uh doing that and then um just works and my little brother my little brother went to theater. We were honestly like for the three of us, I have two brothers. For the three of us we were very like creative growing up, but I think that always kind of confused my dad a little bit. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think some of it's generational too. Like I don't have, I don't have artistic, I don't come from an artistic family, immediate family anyway. Um, I have some aunts and uncles who can, who can, who are actually very gifted visual artists. And I had a great grandfather who was a, uh, a pianist, like a professional piano player. Oh, wow. Yeah. So there's like strains of it, you know, you can kind of pick it up here and there, but it wasn't like I was raised in one of these families where like, you know, mom was publishing books and dad was directing movies or whatever, you know? Yeah. But I think generationally, sometimes you'll have a parent who, I don't know, works some corporate job or works some steady job and offers like a stable environment and a decent enough education for the kids to think that a life in the arts is even possible. Yeah. And like, even when you, when you make it possible to have a life in the arts, there's a little bit of difference with that and that too. Cause like, if my parents made it possible for me to go to college, you know, and either my brothers, my, well, my little brothers in college, but like, you know, when I was going there, I was the first one in, um, my aunts and uncles and their kids and whatnot. Um, I, I used to literally get called college boy at family gatherings because you were the one who went off and got a degree. Cause I went, because I was going to college. I was in college and I got called college boy. <laughs> But it sounds like you come from like a funny family. That's good. And and that many siblings and everybody's close. Yeah, I inherited heart disease and jokes. Okay. Well, you can't win them all. Yeah. <laughs> what kind of heart disease? Just Oh, I just have high cholesterol. It's nothing fun. Okay. It's none of those sexy heart diseases. It's just high cholesterol. What do you do? You have to take uh what do you call those things? Um the statins. Yeah. A torvastatin. You taking that stuff? Yeah, I get on that stuff. Okay. I have like one of the I, – I went to a doctor and he's like, you know, you tell me all this history. I'm going to do a genetic test. This was back when I had health insurance. This was the good old days. And uh, he would be like, you know, let's do a test. And so they did like a test that said that was just very bad news. That was like genetically you're at one of the highest risks for heart disease. I'm like, oh, that's not good. So I started taking it. Wow, okay. And is, is it working? I guess I haven't had any problems with my heart ever that I've noticed. I've never gone to the hospital for it. Just some guy tells you, you know, he's, he looks pretty professional. He's got a white coat on. I'm just going to go with what he says. Yeah. I mean, I have some of that in my, I think everybody's got some of that in their family somewhere, but I was like getting a physical years ago and they did like what, like an ultrasound. They look at your heart to see. And then it was like, I had some sort of septal situation. One of the sept, septum septa in my heart was, had like a small f- hole in it or, you know, and then yeah, I, I started, I, yeah, I started like freaking, like I was, 
you know, I guess, I guess it was like no big deal, but it was something we needed to like monitor. And it was always like sort of in the back of my mind and I was freaked out about it. And then I switched doctors and I was getting another physical and I told her about it and she was like, Oh yeah, they just discovered that that doesn't mean anything. Or, oh, do, well, that's good. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? So like, yeah, just gets to be a little bit much, but I guess it's better to err on the side of knowing more than knowing too little. My dad had a heart attack and, uh, well, he's had a couple of them, but he had a heart attack and, uh, apparently didn't make a fuss about it didn't tell anyone didn't go anywhere he didn't know he had a heart attack and so he like he went to the the doctor and the doctor's like hey man you had a heart attack a not good heart attack and my dad just ate it he just took it (laughs) that blows my mind when he tells me that story he just took it like imagine having a heart attack and just deciding to write it out yeah that's insane, and but it like clearly it's the most midwestern thing I can think of. Right, and he just what did he do then? Did they have to do any kind of like intervention to? Uh... Oh, they've chopped him up. I joke with him every time I see him. He's got an orangutan heart now, and he's he's gone through the surgeries and whatnot. But he's good. He's still stubborn. He still says he can kick my ass. All right. Wait, does he really have an orangutan heart? No. Oh. I don't think he, that's a real thing. Oh, okay. I just say he does to make him mad. <laughs> But he didn't have, like, a heart transplant. No, he just had, like, uh, they took, you know, the stint from his leg and put it in his heart. Yeah, that whole thing. Yeah. All right, man. Well, um, I, like, the the, pot, the the like the process of getting this book out into the world, you know, it's always lengthy. It never oh, yeah. happens as, as quickly as we might like it to. But, you know, now it's happened, and it's out there, and people are reading the book, and making sense of it and, you know, emailing you and uh, telling you what they think and everything. How does it feel? Like, how do, is it everything you thought it would be? No, I mean, I don't know. When you, when you when you think about, like, being a published author, there's almost like a gravity to it that it doesn't exist. You know, you have this idea, like, like I was saying earlier, you're walking amongst the halls, right? And it's not like, you know, if it was like that at one point, it is not like that anymore, you know? You first thing I notice is how ruthlessly a business it is, you know. And uh, I I don't know why I wasn't thinking that if I wasn't thinking, but it is a hundred percent like a business, which is a little off putting for me. Which I don't know why, but it just it 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 never gets easier. And then also the lengthiness of how long it took. By the time it came out, I felt relieved, really more so than like excited. Just like, yeah, I did it. It got across the line. Yeah. It's out there. Have at yeah. it if you want. All right. On to the next one. Do you have uh, uh, any kind of vision or plan in your head for how you want your professional life to go? Like, are you trying to actualize something that's very specific to you? Or are you kind of just plotting day by day, figuring it out as you go? I'm plotting day by day, figuring it out as it goes. Like, my taxes are insane to do. <laughs> That's how I qualify. Like, that's how I explain to people what my life is like now. Because if you have like podcast income, right, and then I get Amazon income from uh, you know self-publishing a book on there, and then you get um, you know different random freelance things or whatever. It's it's just it's a nightmare to figure out. Um, I don't think I want to be like a media careerist, which is really kind of funny because I have a podcast and a book out, but. You know, seconds COVID's over, I want to get back to nonprofit stuff and like and work like that because I feel like that's like the kind of key to a happy life. I see a lot of bitter authors on social media. 
a lot of really bitter authors and um, just a lot of bitter people. <laughs> yeah, but even like the the the, the idea that like the greed kind of kind of seeps in a little bit there was god what was it i don't know if you know about this but i remember seeing a thing a couple months ago that was about like uh publishing rights for uh interspersed with libraries checking out books and like there was some author advocating for like it's unfair that 50 people get to read it and i only get like i never want to be that type of author I never ever want to be that type of person advocating for charging people to rent out a book in the light. Like it, it's insane to me. It's lucky enough if you get it published. If if you, I I will if I can't cut it here, I will work <laughs> at the UPS store. That's just how I'd rather run my life. You know. Yeah, I hear you. I think like there's a, a like a strain of artist who is super competitive tracking the market paying attention to who wins what award who gets what advance and deal and who's like very invested i guess in the business of publishing and i think maybe there's a school of thought that that says that this sort of thing is advisable you know if you want to succeed as a writer then you you best be paying attention to such things but i find it really hard to go there dude I, I, I'm going to get yelled at it for this maybe, but I don't care. YA authors are insane about that. Insane about like advances and like school buy. And it's, I don't understand. It's, it's cutthroat from what I've seen. YA it's, it's who exhausting man. YA authors exhaust me. Well, I feel like I would be, I think that's what I'm getting at is that I, I feel like that would just be so, uh, Why even write? Yeah, dude, exactly. It would just drain me. It's like hard enough just to do the writing, and then you got to get all like uh, you know wound up about who's getting what and why, and I should be having this, and I you know it's just like oh god, you know, forget about yeah. it. Yeah, and your dad's probably rich anyway. You know, that's how I think about it. But I'm a piece of shit, so who knows? <laughs> what you mean the the because the there's a lot of privilege in writing like the oh yeah man the mfa alone what an awful thing to the world of writing in my opinion literally just a five digit gate (laughs) to cross yeah it's a it's a bit talk about a business you know like those schools are cashing in um as a guy who has an mfa and also a guy who has worked in academia um and sort of seen it from the inside out like so the colleges are businesses and yeah. those, those tuition checks, you know, the, they're, uh, they're hefty and they're financing a very, uh, cash rich oftentimes business. Um, we were, I, I, I know, you know, I hung out with a lot of people that wanted to be writers in college and whatnot. Um, not hung out, but you know, I was around them in a lot of the same circles and whatnot, but, um, you definitely notice which ones actually went and got their MFA and which ones that didn't. And the ones that did tended to be ones that uh, they wore nicer clothes than everyone else. Everyone I know with student loans is just like, I'll never pay it. Eh, yeah. They gotta come get it from me. It's either I pay my student loans or like I have internet. So right. if you're a smart person, you should pick internet. 
I mean, uh, do you think there's any chance they're going to, that Biden, when he uh, takes office, is going to cancel student debt? Is that going to happen? I don't think so. I think they're talking about it, but they always just talk about stuff. Right. Like, honestly, the, the Biden's not going to change anything. I think it's pretty apparent from his record. He likes us just where we're at. You know, we're not going to get another 1200. They're going to give out another stimulus thing for like small business, which somehow the loss ends up with like NBA teams getting it. It's I don't know. I'm very non-optimistic about a Biden presidency. Everyone acts like, oh, we can go to brunch now. That's like the laziest shit in the world to me. He wrote the crime bill. He sucks. Yeah. I mean, I think like I'm holding out hope that, that, you know, there's going to be some positive movement, but we'll see, you know, I I don't know. I don't know. And I think, uh, I think you got to be a crazy person to be optimistic politically in America. (laughs) You have to be fucking insane. (laughs) I, uh, I think that if there is not, let me put it to you this way. I think if there is not significant action taken to address the very real pain that people are experiencing, especially working class or, you know, middle class, uh, poor people, like, you know, if they're not very real actions taken, then, um, that is a like catastrophic political miscalculation for him and for whoever, yeah. whoever makes it, because people are just gonna, they're gonna, you know, they're gonna say, fuck you. And, you know, I don't know what that's going to lead to, but it doesn't seem like it's going to lead to anything good. Yeah, last time I was on a podcast talking about, like, what's going to happen on this, they ended up cutting what I said because I just told everyone to uh, um, do something unsavory to Jeff Bezos and everything will be fine. So <laughs> I won't repeat myself there, but use your imagination. <laughs> well, listen, man, I, uh, I've i enjoyed uh, meeting you over the line here and talking with you and getting a chance to feature your book in the book club and hopefully give it a push. Um, I congratulate you on it and, um, congratulate you on like all the, the work that you're doing. You know, I think it's, it's cool that you're, you know, at least when you, you know, when things get hopefully back to some semblance of normal doing the nonprofit work as kind of a, a breadwinner job, but also like a, a job that has real like meaning and decency in it, which isn't always the easiest thing to do and does require sacrifice. Like I admire you for doing that kind of work. Um, oh, thank you. And then fit. That's why we do it for people to tell us. That. Yeah. Right. <laughs> for the crit. Yeah. No, but I, you know, not everybody makes that choice and, um, it's cool to do a helping job, you know, that doesn't necessarily get credit or, you know, there's not a lot of public, uh, accolades thrown down at people who are just kind of going in there and helping kids and underprivileged people and all that kind of stuff. And so kudos for that. And then kudos as well for like doing the podcast. I know what that takes and trying to be funny and make some uh, people Hmm. laugh in this world. And then also writing books that make people cry and laugh. Yeah. Well, (laughs) hopefully not at the same time. Yeah. Well, Hey, that's kind of cool too. (laughs) Yeah. It's a weird feeling, I guess. Um, but it's nice to meet you and congrats again. All right. Thank you. Yeah. Thanks. You so much. Thanks for having me on, man. All right. There you have it. That is Alex Branson. His novel is called Water Wasted. It is available from Rare Bird Books. It is the official December pick of the Nervous Breakdown Book Club. It makes an excellent stocking stuffer. 
You can find Alex Branson on Twitter. His handle is at Necro Branson. He also has that podcast. It's called the E1 Podcast. You can follow it at E1 Podcast. Again, the novel is called Water Wasted. Go get your copy immediately. Available from Rare Bird Books. The official December pick of the Nervous Breakdown Book Club. If you want to join that club, just go to thenervousbreakdown.com. If you would like to support this show, throw a couple of bucks in the hat. You can do that at patreon.com slash otherpplpod. If you would like to write to me, my email address is letters at otherppl.com. If you would like to get some gear, an Other People t-shirt, sweatshirt, or tank top, you can do that by going to the show's official website, otherppl.com. Click on the t-shirt in the left sidebar. Get yourself some gear. This program has its own official app, the Other People with Brad Listy app. It is free. It's a free app. It's a good app. It's a quality app. Go get the app. It's a good way to listen. So I'm trying to sort out holiday schedule stuff. You know, it's going to be a little bit uh, wonky, but we'll see what happens. I can't tell you exactly how the episodes are going to roll out. I may miss a week as we uh, careen into 2021. I may not. I don't know. I'm trying to figure my shit out. But I do have some good ones in the pipeline, and uh, I'm excited to share those conversations with you in due time. I hope you're having a nice holiday season somehow. And if you're not, I hope that you can like just listen to some podcasts. I've got 700 of them here for you. What the hell? Sweet Jesus. <laughs>